welcome to Thriving Room. Today's guest, Bill Lennon, is the Johnny Appleseed of preventative mental wellness. He is very knowledgeable about mental well-being from professional experience, diverse education, and personal experience. He is a voracious learner and reaches out to me from time to time to ask for my feelings on what confidence is or what drives tenacity in the face of struggle or many other parts of the human experience. I appreciate his openness to ideas and I'm glad to be what he has called a foil for him in our conversations. Perhaps today's conversation will be one of these. Bill, let's start with a topic we have been talking about recently. When we feel stuck or feel helpless to an extent, what is that signaling to us? Good question. At the most simplest level, what that means is that there's some kind of a, of a thing that we don't know how to say or do. As, as, an, as an easy example, some of us are really, really comfortable in the water. And when an opportunity to go jump in the water and play comes up, we're like, woohoo, we're all in. Other people aren't comfortable in the water. And so when that opportunity presents itself, they're not jumping in with the same excitement and they, they may actively run away from it. This kind of thing runs everywhere. I've spoken with people who have jobs at companies and they want flexibility in their career, but they don't know how to start to explore that. They don't know the skill of finding their own career flexibility, whether it's to figure out how to become a team leader or how to move horizontally into a different organization, but it's, it's a skill set, right? And conversations with your kids about what they're doing and why they shouldn't be on their phones as much, why they need more exercise, why they should eat better, career choices, whatever that happens to be. Again, if you don't know how to have that conversation in a way that's comfortable, then you won't have it and you'll you'll want to advocate for the school to have that conversation instead. There's a bazillion different examples of this I can think of. When you say have a conversation in a way that is comfortable, mm -hmm. what does that mean? So the goal of communication isn't just for us to have sounds come out of our mouths. It's for the other people to actually really understand it. Having the conversation so that the other person says, oh, wow, I totally get this and it makes sense is the value proposition. Learning the skills to approach a conversation from that perspective, for one, and then to understand what the other person is saying so that we can adjust along the way to make sure that our communication is, is in a context that for them is interesting. Let's go through this example of career flexibility. Uh -huh. A bunch of our listeners may find this useful. Sure. How do you suggest people can begin to figure out whom they should be speaking with and which skills they should be seeking? Sure. That's a great question. My default starting point on that is, number one, I can learn anything I put my mind to. And it isn't something that necessarily that's going to be done in five minutes but that I can do it. And I might not be great at it, but at least I will be better than somebody who's never tried. 
that gives me the freedom then to say, okay, what do I want to learn? Where do I want to, where do I want to put my curiosity to figure out where else I might want to go in a work setting? I'm always curious inside a company about how other parts of the company work and what is it they're doing and what are the problems they're trying to solve and who are their influencers, who are the people that they're influencing, who are their end users, their customers. I want to understand how the ecosystem, the broad ecosystem works. And that gives me places where I see, oh, I'm curious about if working there could be more interesting than working here. Or I, I can contribute to that team in ways that will help them out. And then I start trying to figure out what it is that I can do to help them while I'm in my current role, even in little tiny pieces. It doesn't really matter what that is. It helps me to understand their ecosystem better and to go, oh, wow, I really do want to move over into this, into this direction. When I got into technology, I started off as a sales guy at a small startup. I had literally zero computer science background, never programmed in school, anything like that. But I was curious about the stuff we were building and how code worked. And so I started pestering the engineers about how does this stuff work? What are the limitations of what I can sell? Ultimately, that turned into them saying, well, do you want to learn how to write code? And I, well, okay, I have no idea what that means, but sure, why not? You know, I'll go as far as I can. Three months later, they were putting my stuff into production, not because I was an amazing coder, but because they had guardrailed me really, really well. A year and a half later, I got a job at another company as their technology lead because I had a bunch of skills that I'd built up that translated to what they were looking for. Um, that first company, I spent my time there mostly on the sales side. But I spent enough time at night and on the weekends writing code and anything else that they wanted done that the next place that I went to, it was easy for them to say, oh, you, you can be our technology lead because you can see a bunch of stuff that we need to do, right? And so I spent four years writing code, learned more languages, and 2020 hindsight actually doing product management. And then the next company that I went to, I went in as an engineer in a project. And they said, by the way, you're also the product manager because nobody here understands this vertical except for you. And so you have to write all your own specs, get them approved, and then write all the code also. I was like, okay, give me a template and I'll, I'll spec to it. I just kept learning. Um, and then I went to help the customer support team because they needed some engineering resources trying to figure out how to help them and support them and the customers and, and move all that forward. Six months later, the VP of engineering asked me to take over customer service. And it was just because I kept being curious and providing value and not being asked to be paid for it. That opened up doorways. Is the not asking to be paid for that work a critical component of this? 100%. 100%, yeah. In this model, and really in any model, you have to prove first that you're valuable, number one, and that you actually know what you're talking about. It's kind of like when I go see the dentist, I don't want him to be learning dentistry in my mouth, right? I know the dentist has practiced with a bunch of other people before he got to me or she. 
I'm willing to go and practice and do little bits and pieces and learn and not worry about getting paid. But the real value proposition there is the knowledge. Because if you go into a context and you have the knowledge, then you're valuable and people will recognize it. If you go into a context and you don't have the knowledge, but you want to get paid for it, not so valuable. There's a lot of contexts where dentistry being a good one, trying to learn the skill when you're in the moment doesn't work very well. I can see this idea making sense of a conversation being successful when people come out of it agreeing to help each other in some way. For example, a series of conversations ultimately led engineers to help teach you how to code. Curiosity was part of the behavior that helped you to get there. Where do you think it might come from when people feel a resistance to curiosity? Say, when people think, my department is the most interesting, everything pales in comparison, or company all hands are just so boring. What do you make of that? So there's a couple things. One of them is, for me, I think it's easier to pull a rope uphill than it is to push it uphill. And so I look for the places in a company where I'm naturally more curious as a starting point. And I don't try to go to the places that are really hard to begin with. And it may be I don't understand the context or there's a variety of possibilities there. But I'm going for what's the low-hanging fruit for my curiosity. And it may be that, you know, I'm on engineering team one and I'm curious what engineering team two is doing. Maybe in this day and age, not right next door, but they're accessible. I want to find out what they're doing. What are they working on? What are the... What are the things that for them are a challenge versus what's easy? And part of this is enlightened self-interest in, oh, wait a minute, they know stuff that I don't know, but it can reflect back to my job. And it can make my team more productive if we learn this thing that they know. Or the reverse. We've figured out this particular thing that they're struggling with. Let's give them a hand. And then, okay, where's the next place to go in my curiosity? Where else do I want to learn? It's all about what's the easy path. I've never been driven to be curious about the office of the CFO. It just never excited me. I'm like, that's somebody else's thing. Even though I've been pulled into helping with stuff related to finance and HR because of stuff that I've done in the past and they wanted my skills, those were very niche problem focused kind of things I was able to help them with. And the reason I was able to help them is I've been curious other times, other places, and I've built up other skills unrelated to what I was doing in the moment. Part of it is, you know, if you're an engineer and you want to write code, you want to understand why you're writing the code. I hope you do. And so understanding why the business does what it does and what makes the business valuable to the customers or the users is a really important part. For career longevity, you want to keep that kind of curiosity rolling around because Otherwise, you you may very well go to a place where your product manager says, we need this kind of a thing. And you go, oh, well, we should build like blah, blah, blah. And it's completely not what the marketplace, the audience wants. And if you don't understand the audience, then, then that's a, a very real possibility. And maybe your curiosity is at a different company. You know, so you can use LinkedIn, find people at other companies, start talking to them about what they're doing, learn how their world operates. You don't have to be siloed in your own organization. You can always go and look at what other people are doing and leverage that curiosity in other directions. The idea of the easy path sounds intriguing. A few of my clients in recent months 
have expressed this feeling that whenever they do anything that feels easy for them, they feel it is worthless. There's this feeling that they need to always be kicking their butt, and when they are not doing so, they are not living up to their potential. How do you add nuance to the way we think about finding ease and self-judgment about being lazy? In a thousand years when I'm perfect, I will no longer struggle with that myself. But until then, I totally get it. You know, part of it is recognizing that humans are programmed and we're programmed often with self-limiting beliefs. And the idea that everything needs to be a struggle and hard and just on the edge of imminent doom in the long run is bad for our health. And, and it may very well lead us into paths that just aren't good for us in the short or the long run. Being able to take a step back and, and have a wise mind perspective. There's an airplane flying over my head, sorry. The idea of being able to take a step back and really look at it and think, what is it that I really want to achieve? What are my longer term goals? Why am I going down this particular path? If you want to be an ultra marathoner, you're going to have to put in a lot of miles and they may or may not be fun and exciting, but they're moving you forward towards your end goal. And you may be somebody that really, really loves running. And so the whole thing could be fun and you could be awesome running Western states. And that's not the case for everybody. So struggle is, is very personal. But I think you've got to figure out where the balance is for yourself of stuff that's easy and fun and enriching and then mindfully putting yourself in places of struggle because you know it'll be good in the long run for you to improve your resilience. Feeling like you're always on edge, I don't think that's a long-term sustainable strategy. How do we get better at identifying what enriches us for the long term? What is worth applying our struggle? Again, in a thousand years, I'll have an amazing answer to this question. But for the moment, for me, it's what are the things that I think I can contribute to the improvement of the world? And I will freely admit that when I was 18, my perspective was I need to go surfing more. And so I did. And I, I hate to sound ageist, but I'm going to anyway. Part of what, what's available for us as we get older is realizing that, and, and I'm using older just in a, this is an ex experiential thing, is that we realize that that thing that we thought was scarce isn't actually scarce. I hit a point of realizing that my, the availability of waves and my ability to go surfing wasn't scarce. Prior to that, I thought it was. And so getting into the ocean was every day was a big driver. Um, once I hit a point of realizing that, wait a minute, this isn't actually scarce. And there's a lot of other things I could be doing that don't involve being in the ocean. That opened up a whole world of other possibilities. But I had to, I had to go through the self-awareness of recognizing that I was driven to surf all the time because I had a scarcity mindset around it. 
And once I got out of that, I was freed up to go do other stuff. My perspective now about what can I do to help the world is available because I went through all that other scarcity stuff before. And now that, you know, when I look around, I'm like, oh, what's scarce? What's scarce is people who have really good mental health in the world. And I can put my energy there. For me in this moment, I feel like waves are not easily within reach, that surfing is scarce. Mm -hmm. I have different context than you had when you made that realization. Yeah. When I was 18, I lived in Hawaii. I got in the water probably 10 times a week. You know, I had all the stuff there to, to feed my habit, my addiction. And at a certain point in time, I, I kind of had this, oh, I'm doing this on autopilot and not out of, I love doing this every moment. I'm satiated. Now, where should I put my energy? And that gave me space to think bigger. We have come back to this message of being curious. Yeah. Sometimes, though, we are in situations in which we feel that we cannot ask certain questions because doing so would tarnish our image that we are experts in an area. How do we manage that? Um, that is an awesome question and one that sadly, I think, needs to be answered too often. Yeah, no, it's a really, yeah. I think the first thing is to recognize that, well, there's a, there's a few things to recognize to kind of level set the playing field, right? The first thing is that when you take a long enough time frame, experts are wrong 100% of the time. The world is not flat. The world is not the center of the, of the universe. Man flight will not take a million, uh, heavier than air flight will not take more than a million years to figure out the math for wings. Uh, there's a whole bunch of those kinds of things where we look back and we're like, I can't believe they actually believe that, right? Um, fire is not made of a substance called phlogiston. The world does have use for more than seven computers, right? Um, and so expertise is a false goal. It, it's, been, it's been marketed a lot, but when you look at people who they're continually doing things and iterating and evolving. Um, Elon Musk isn't an expert in anything, but he's ridiculously curious and successful, right? And I, I look at him as a great model. Jeff Bezos is also not an expert in anything, but he's super curious and asking of questions. For them, there is no such thing as a dumb question. And I figure if they can look at the world that way and with their level of success, then I can look at it that way also. That's a good role model for me. Unfortunately, our school system penalizes us when we ask questions and leverage curiosity outside of particular narrow contexts and that that's where people get trained. And there's not a, a level setting of, wait a minute, what, what's, it, what's it like out in the real world? I always look at those kinds of things as my kind of my level setting is the folks that are the most curious end up being the most successful and the folks that are most stuck in being experts end up being proven wrong and and so you might as well ask the dumb question and just get comfortable with the idea that there really are no dumb questions anywhere there may be somebody who's impatient that they have to answer you but the question's still a good question no matter what 
we can have a very sensory experience of someone's impatience by picking up on their tone of voice or noticing their body language. Mm -hmm. Are we to normalize the feeling of discomfort that we might have when that happens? We should get that they might not have the same mental model as we do. No two people are going to share identical mental models, which is fine because humans are all like snowflakes. We're all different. Their level of impatience is just their experience. It doesn't really mean anything about where I'm at and my experience of the world. And this is definitely a, you know, self-awareness kind of a, kind of a thing to learn and practice over time. In the moment of a meeting, I might feel my throat clenching up. I might be pacing in my brain, listening to other people talk as I squint my eyes for that instant mm -hmm. when I can place my question, feeling like I have been waiting so long that I can taste how stale the air has gotten, seeing an imaginary ball being passed back and forth between people just outside of my reach. Tactically, do I conjure up a voice in my head that says, do it enough times until I actually do? Absolutely. Um, it's, so it's, a, it's a skill like any other skill. And with skills, I don't know about you, but when I started doing math, it was with single digit numbers and really easy stuff. And when I learned how to swim, the starting point was blowing bubbles. And so in this context, you know, asking a question in a meeting may be the equivalent of doing algebraic formulas. And if you're still at the single digit addition point of asking questions, then it's going to be very, very, very difficult to get yourself to actually do it in any way that makes sense. So start with the smaller things where you're asking questions of people about someplace where you don't feel nearly as uncomfortable, right? A very nominal starting that you can then work up, work yourself up to that meeting being only a little bit uncomfortable. And you can raise your hand and say, I've got a question and I need some clarification around something. I'm trying to understand the, the business value of this particular thing, or why do we make this architectural choice or you know, whatever it happens to be. The level of discomfort should be manageable without you putting in a ton of effort. And if it's not manageable, it means you need to start smaller. It's, e it's okay to start too small, right? And figure out, oh, this is easy. Back to the swimming analogy, blowing bubbles in the kitchen sink is really, really, really easy to do. Or the bathtub. The next level up may be blowing bubbles in the kiddie pool, which may feel a lot more emotionally charged. But okay, we'll go there, right? And then the next level may be blowing bubbles in the big swimming pool, holding on to the side where you can't touch the water, right? So what is the, what is the progression of working yourself up with steps that you can manage? And they don't have to feel like they're incredibly hard, but you're continuously making forward progress. Yes, it is okay to start too small. Yeah. As long as we start, we can progress. The next time that you get a boba tea with milk, ask them if the milk comes from um, cows that are not treated with RBST. Right? Whatever, you know, something that is an easy 
starting point that you wouldn't normally do because you might feel a little funny asking that question. Would you say that people who act on their curiosity feel funny more often because they are going out and asking these questions of the world? Or do they have a different bar for what makes them feel strange and they feel that feeling less often than other people? I think what they've learned is that it's okay to ask questions about anything and that there is no awkward. And this is, it's a learned thing, right? Somehow when they were kids, they got rewarded for their curiosity in ways that had them see no stigma in asking questions and, and instead seeing the upside of that, right? Getting the reward, um, understanding the value, having that be repeated until the idea of, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is automatic and natural and, and, and I can go ask questions of anybody about anything. Let's say for people who are observing that they're in an environment in which they are not being rewarded for asking questions, how might we generate these rewards for ourselves? Very good question. For me, my internal reward system around this is always I'm learning new stuff. And I'm very happy to be learning new stuff because my insecurity is that there's always stuff to know in the world that will help move things forward that I don't know and that I don't know that I don't know. And the only way I'm ever going to bridge that gap is by asking questions and being curious. And so I'm feeding, if that's the right word to use, I'm, I'm, I'm being very mindful and aware of my own insecurity. And it's one that I want to keep because I see the benefit of it. And I keep being curious and asking more questions and learning things that help me understand how things operate better, as well as how to approach impact of things that I want to build. Let us say that we are experimenting with different content and different people on how to get answers to the questions that we want. Mm -hmm. And more times than not, we are failing. How would we apply awareness in order to figure out how to do better or turn to other people for help? Another good question. I tend to think in terms of where is it that the other person wants to take the conversation? Not necessarily that I want to know specifically a given thing, right? And now, granted, if I'm doing, you know, if I'm interviewing somebody for product management and I really want to figure out a particular use case, right? I'm going to try and pull the conversation back to me better understanding a use case. And that's in a very business and uh, product focused kind of a context where I'm trying to really understand something. Outside of that, I'm willing to let the conversation be more free ranging because part of what I'm doing in the conversation is I'm asking questions to understand the person better because that helps us build a relationship. And if we have a relationship, I can always cycle back and ask them more questions in the future that are more focused on a specific area. But if in the first conversation, they're resistant to answering those kinds of things in a way that is helpful, 
then to me, I think about that as being a, I haven't earned the privilege yet of having them be relaxed to answer those questions. I want to have my approach be such that they are comfortable and can then, and can then answer questions for me. Now we're layering in the skills. There's a whole skill around building relationships. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the social awareness, you know, the part of the whole asking questions and being curious is, is how do you do social awareness well? And how do you think about what's your, your mental model for approaching the conversation? I love this insight of not asking a question to get a specific answer, but to invite engagement and to center the other person, where they're coming from, what they want to get out of the conversation so that we can work together in order to solve a problem. And it's also about their, their comfort zone and their time. You have to wait till they're ready and comfortable talking about whatever the topic is. What do you look for when you gauge someone's comfort level? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't have a, like a math kind of um, calculated answer for that. Yeah, I, it's just a question of they'll say something and it sticks in my brain. And, and then I think, oh, I want to cycle back on this and see where they go see how they do. It's, um, it's testing. Right? I'll, I'll do a test question in a particular direction and I'll see how they respond. And if they're clearly comfortable and relaxed and at ease about going down that road, then great. That, that's, that's awesome. And if, if they're not, then I'm going to back up and then revisit it later. Sometimes we can test once, feel like it fails, and then not test again because we feel we committed a faux pas. We've ruined this relationship forever. Mm -hmm. Yes, that happens. Yeah. Um, in the mental health world, that's called catastrophizing. And it's, it's predicting the worst possible future based on one moment of data and, and getting emotionally invested in that without any other corroborative testing or data. What are ways to get out of catastrophizing? Back to the mental health skill set, there's this skill set that's all about checking our assumptions and, and, and our, it's called catch it, check it, change it. And it's recognizing this negative thing, this catastrophizing, you know, whatever it is, and then saying, okay, what's the data that backs up that thing? Let's go look at that data. By the way, what's the data that has the opposite perspective? You know, oh my God, I've ruined this relationship. Someone's never going to answer a question again. Except that they're still here talking to me and they don't seem inclined to want to leave. So now you've got the counter data on the other side. And they don't sound angry, right? They don't sound like they're trying to hang up the phone on me or run away or whatever. So... Maybe I'm misreading and maybe I can do another test. Getting curious is very much about questioning our interpretations of events and the assumptions that led us there. Right. I had an experience when I was a kid of medical professionals. Um, I broke my femur when I was 16 and the, the two um, orthopedic surgeons that 
said it, told me I would never run again. That was very rough emotionally, and I decided to prove them wrong. And so what I came out of that with partly was this experience of experts only speak from what they know. In the long run, looking back, it's easy to see how that's not accurate. And I leveraged my own curiosity to drive myself into being able to run again. This happened to you at 16. How long did it take for you to be able to run again? Um, it took me about a year to start to, to jog a mile. When you break your femur, there's a huge amount of muscle atrophy. Um, when I got out of the cast, my, um, my thigh was smaller than my calf muscle was. And I just started doing PT. And muscles grow as fast as they will grow. And uh, when they take off the cast, the bone isn't actually solid. Still a little hardening needs to happen. I did all the PT that I possibly could, as much as I could, things that they hadn't talked about doing. I spent a lot of time in bare fins in the ocean as a low, low stress kind of exercise to, to work the muscles and the joints and everything. And it worked. Then at 18, you were getting into the water 10 times a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Experts, as much as society and they themselves reinforce their expertise, are still speaking from what they know. Yep. When we are in the midst of a conversation with experts, and we sense that they are not currently very willing to challenge their assumptions, mm -hmm. what can we do to progress the conversation? Again, in a thousand years, I'll have a really elegant answer to this question. But for now, I think the starting point is being able to, there's a few things to it, right? If someone is emotionally tied to their expertise, and that's part of their identity, and they're insecure about losing that expertise or that identity, because of their emotional attachment, they may not be willing to even broach a conversation that questions what they know, period. When people are really emotionally tied to their identity as experts, the only way to get them to think about and to look at something different is to bring in somebody who's got more expertise and and has more social clout. So as an example, when we are talking to folks about our mental wellness curriculum, and it's someone who's a counselor or a therapist and they've got experience and background, it is very unusual for someone to argue with our CEO who in a clinical setting works with folks at the emergency end of the spectrum because she's getting in people that have substance abuse problems and self-harm problems and they're on pharmaceuticals for depression or anxiety. And she gets them out of that place and back in control, in control of their lives and off medication. The program that she works in has won a bunch of awards. And so it's very well recognized. People can't argue with her that it doesn't work unless their emotions are tied up in something where they, they want to be stuck in that particular place. You know, if someone really is tied into their, their, their thing, then they're not going to move. That's the whole growth mindset versus fixed mindset paradigm. People that have a growth mindset will entertain anything pretty much if they think it's got any possibility of value in their context. 
When you say someone with social clout, you mean someone whom people tend to listen to? Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's that whoever's resistant can't say to the other person, you know, that you bring in, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Right? Because they do. Right? There's a lot of different contexts around that where where that's possible to have happen when i need to have conversations with people where i know there's the possibility of that happening um i'm very careful to overload the amount of data i've got that's going in my direction from other people so that i can say look here's here's a thing that you mr or ms expert think is the truth, but here's a bunch of data that shows that that was valid 10 years ago, but it's not so valid today. I sometimes worry about managing people's emotions, so this question comes to mind. What if this person does not say no out loud to this other person you have brought into the conversation and feels resentment inside? What if this person is insecure and now is becoming more insecure because that person has thoughts now. Oh, you tried to best me with this other person. What are your suggestions? Yeah, there's a course I'm selling that answers this question. <laughs> it's $10,000 and it's two hours long. Um, Sign me up. Um, yeah, exactly. You're ready. You're like, oh my God, okay, I'm there. Um, I didn't charge nearly enough. I need to raise the price next time. <laughs> That was a test. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the fundamentals of this, there's a few parts um, to to that I, that I that I have running around in my head, and that have worked for me. One of them is I start with not bringing a third person into the meeting um, unless I think I absolutely have to. Right, that's kind of my my last resort, and instead I rely on having a lot of other data points from other experts. I put this in the context of, you know, here's some new data that you probably aren't aware of yet, just because it's really new and I'm the curious one. And so I go looking for new stuff all the time. And when I'm in the product team, it's part of my job description to be curious and go learn new stuff. And so I have learned stuff that other people in the company had no idea, right? Because I'm out there being the scout on the bleeding edge, trying to figure out what's the latest stuff going on. And so I, I, I don't, I don't put it in any context where there's any blame on them for not knowing this, any more than I would, you know, blame a 12-year-old for not knowing calculus. If you don't know how to surf because you've never been in the ocean, it's not your fault. There's no blame involved. It's just you've never had the chance to learn this stuff. Overloading with data. To prove my point, I anytime I'm trying to figure out how much to, data to put in, I err on the side of more is better until they, be, because as the data is being presented, you know, once they get to a certain point, if they get overloaded and they're like, okay, I totally get it, stop, right? I'm like, okay, I'm done, and roll it in that way. I have run into situations where I have wanted changes to be made in executives' perspectives or whatever. And they have said, this is all great, I totally get it, and I'm not going down this road because my ego's involved in it. 
this is not what I want to be known as or how I want to be seen or whatever. And I, I, okay, I can't, I can't fight that. Right. I'm like, okay, radical acceptance. I totally accept that's the case. And I need to move on to a different problem. When I do have to go with the nuclear option and bring in someone who's really, really a heavy hitter, I'm very careful to pick people who are excellent communicators and who can talk about this in a way that the, the other person doesn't feel belittled at all. We sometimes hear about people responding well to arguments of pathos and not receiving data well. That idea makes me cry. For them, they want the emotion as a wrapper around the logic. And in some contexts, that idea that the emotion is more important than the logic can be awesome. It's the why of things. Um, Simon Sinek talks about this all the time. Won't care about what you're doing until they understand why you're doing it. And so if they want that emotional argument, then figuring out how to get the logic into the emotional context for them is our job as communicators. It is our responsibility as communicators. Yep, exactly. If people listening are thinking about someone they are struggling to have a productive conversation with, what takeaway do you want to leave them with today? Pretty much always goes back to curiosity to figure out what the drivers are for the other person and understanding that what's important to them we don't have to be in alignment about what we see is important. We need to be in alignment about outcomes, but not necessarily about where and how we, thinks, we think things are important. Really asking more questions to understand more about what the other person is driven by is really, really helpful. You know, this is kind of the, you know, in the sales world, asking people questions to understand how they see a problem space or in the relationship world, especially early in a relationship, asking a ton of questions so you can figure out if this is somebody that you want to put more time and energy into, you know, thinking in your head, okay, this is a filtration problem. You know, if you're in a place where you're really trying to get someone to look at things differently, being curious to really get to the place of what are their core drivers? What's, what's underlying what, where they're thinking and where they're going? And is that something that I can influence or do I just have to accept that there's nothing I can do about it. My mom refused to quit smoking, despite knowing how bad it was for her health and despite my dad quitting smoking uh, for a decade. And then um, she went for a, a doctor visit and the doctor said, hey, uh, you know, if you want to live to see your grandkids, you need to quit smoking right now. And that was the key that she needed in that moment, that authority figure and that context to say, oh, okay, I've had my last cigarette already, then what do I do now? It's understanding the motivation and having the authority. Neither my dad nor I could talk to my mom in such a way that she would be willing to take the risk of trying to quit smoking because she was afraid of failure. The doctor, on the other hand, gave her a reason to go beyond that fear of failure because she wanted to be around to see her grandkids. This contextual driver is important to her. Right, exactly. So being curious helps you find that. I would love to chat next time about fear of failure, which you just brought up. Uh -huh. What can radical acceptance of fear look like? Yeah. How do we live with fear? Sure. How do we thrive with fear? On next week's episode. Great. Thank you, Bill. Beautiful.
I leave this conversation excited to ask questions of myself and of others to use my curiosity as a strength in building human connection. Best to you in your curious adventures. Subscribe to our mailing list at thrivingroom.substack.com. And see you next time.